This is The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Good morning, it's John Moore. This is The Breakfast Wrap for Tuesday, December 13th. The weather forecast for today, sunny, but zero is as warm as it gets. Here are the five things you need to know. Number one, police probing a mosque attack in Scarborough. Number two, Charles Sousa declaring victory for the Liberals in a Mississauga by-election. Uh, Number three, Mississauga City Councilor is proposing flexible speed limits. Number four, Jugmeet Singh threatens to pull out of the deal with the Liberals. He'll be joining us at 8.20 a.m. Number five, a new deal is reached for the waterfront development site on the city's east end. The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Well, good morning. How are you doing so far? Maybe a little on the cold side. It's minus eight outside. Might be the coolest start we've had to the show this fall slash winter. Uh, wind chill making that feel like minus 13 degrees. On the agenda this morning, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this one with the pundits because, uh, you know, the pundits kind of weighed in on it yesterday and predicted that there wasn't much to be teased politically out of a by-election result. However, it is a personality on the political scene that people may be familiar with. Charles Souza was the finance minister. He was the provincial MPP. He lost when the liberals were swept from office in two election cycles ago now, and then he decided to run again. I was joking yesterday that I didn't understand why he didn't just run for mayor of something, because that seems to be what happens to defeated um, provincial MPPs. They just become mayors of one town or another. I mean, we're up to four of them, right? We got John Tory, we have uh, Patrick Brown, and then uh, Steve Del Duca, and the last one would be uh, Andrea Horvath. There you go. Not just ex provincial MPPs, but in most cases, ex-provincial leaders of political parties. But uh, Charles Souza did win, or at the very least, he's declared victory, which seems to be the tactic these days, uh, certainly in the States. I love this growing movement in the States where it's, well, if you're winning in the ballot count, stop the ballot count. It's like, yeah, but there's still more votes to come. Um, So in this case, uh, Sousa appears to have won, but we don't have any majorly hard figures just yet. And the voter turnout looks to have been absolutely pathetic. But at last report, Charles Sousa had 52% of the vote compared to his rival, uh, who is a former police officer, I might add, um, Ron Chinzer, and he was at 33.6%. But that was only with 50% of the polls reporting. And again, at that hour, at last report, we were talking about a turnout of 7.5%. That is nuts. But, you know, I, I, I have an established record in this department. I cannot stand people always trying to figure out what did the people who didn't vote want to say? Nothing. They didn't vote. It's like asking what a bunch of people sitting silently in a room wanted to uh, wanted to say they didn't want to say anything apparently because they didn't say anything um a story we talked about on the show yesterday really kind of caught fire didn't it i'm sure you saw it on the evening news and that was the story of a little four-year-old guy he 
uh, took ill in Simcoe. And I think it's worth correcting here that his parents, we talked to his mom yesterday morning at um, 535, and then we revisited portions of that interview a little later on in the show. His mom never thought that he was going to end up with emergency trauma treatment, you know, at the nearest hospital. But they were hoping that the nearest children's hospital would be where they would end up, which is 70 kilo- 75 kilometers away from home. They ended up with an air ambulance taking them 350 kilometers away. And here is what the health minister had to say about it yesterday, which some people are accusing her of being tone deaf in all of this, but she is kind of echoing. And who knows, maybe she was even listening. Mark Tui yesterday morning in for Jerry Agar was taking calls and I was in the car on the way home. And one person after another was weighing in and saying, okay, listen, it's not ideal that a kid ends up and the kid's mother uh, end up 350 kilometers away from home. But maybe the important takeaway here is that the medical system saved his life. Look, I, I get it. It's not ideal as a family to have to have a child that far away. But it is also important to appreciate that by doing that air transport, that child was able to be uh, assessed and treated sooner. And what an incredible case this was. If you had listened to the mom yesterday morning on our show or seen the video yesterday on CTV News, I mean, this is a little guy. And this actually happens when you get severe cases of the flu. It erupts in all kinds of other places. You end up with the possibility of organ failure, and often you end up with very severe skin issues. And he ended up with what really amounts to burns on his skin around the sites where they had inserted uh, tubes and feeds. And so now, I think she said it was Wednesday, so tomorrow, uh, he's going to be transferred to the hospital for sick kids, and they're going to put him into the burn unit and start treating him for that. But yeah, one of the important takeaways here would be that we have a system that is so, you know, well, well, not well staffed, but by, by that, what I mean is staffed by talented medical professionals, knowledgeable medical professionals with the resources to make a diagnosis because originally he was misdiagnosed, diagnose him with sepsis ultimately, then treat that with a radical antibiotic treatment, amongst other things, and then stabilize him. And now he's going to be taken to the hospital for sick kids. Still not ideal, still a very sick little guy, but he's going to be okay. And speaking of the hospital for sick kids, we are doing our Radiothon on Thursday. And, you know, I'll freely admit some of the interviews that we're going to, some of the stories we're going to tell, they're based on interviews that we've already done. And so yesterday, I spent quite a lot of time talking with families, and it was delightful. You know, it it occurred to me in doing them, we used to have, you know, we'd all be at the hospital, they'd arrive with the kids, sometimes the kids would be cranky or they'd miss their nap, or they were just nervous about being in this crazy place. But now for kids sitting on your dad's lap, um, which both of the kids I interviewed yesterday were doing, in your home on a video meeting, which is probably how you've talked to your grandparents and some of your teachers over the last few years, very comfortable situation. So they were hilarious. And one little girl kept getting up and running out of the room and coming back with one Barbie doll after another and holding them up because she likes making clothes for her Barbie doll. Um, So I, I think as much as these are stories about families in extremis, 
I think you're going to enjoy a lot of the stories that we tell on Thursday. And remember always that what we would love for you to do right away, you could do it right now while you're listening, depending on where you are. I mean, if you're in a car, it would be a little crazy. Um, but if you're sitting at home on your desk top and you're listening to us streaming and you're doing some email, you could go to our website, newstalk1010.com, sign up to become a monthly donor, and then your donation every single month for 12 months is going to be tripled by an anonymous donor. So that day is going to be happening on Thursday. Uh, on today's show, we're going to be talking with a few people who are definitely in the news. Charles Souza is going to join us at 735 for a quick go round the morning after winning uh, by election. Doesn't change the balance in Ottawa. One thing that could easily change the balance in Ottawa would be Jugmeet Singh pulling out of the quote, I say quote only because I'm sorry. I'm not going to pretend to be some sort of political insider. I had never heard of supply and confidence before. Uh, but they, the deal that the NDP have with the federal liberals, Jagmeet Singh is threatening to pull out of it, and he will join us at 8.20. That doesn't mean the government falls. It just means that the NDP, I mean, they're not in a coalition either. It's a very strange little arrangement. You're listening to The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. And time now to say good morning to John Moore, News Talk Radio 1010, see what's on his mind today. Hey, morning, John. Good morning, George. Nice to be here. Good to have you. Uh, let's start uh, here. The Velvet Fog, as I've often called them. Charles Souza uh, wins the Mississauga Lakeshore federal by-election, and he's coming on your show. Yeah, he's going to be on our show this morning at, uh, I think it's 7.35, and this is the morning after he declared victory. It hasn't actually officially been declared, but by last count, he was leading with 52% of the vote compared to 33.6% for his conservative rival. What's particularly compelling here in this uh, by-election would be that the turnout was absolutely minimal. It's almost miserable. I mean, I'm sure it's going to go up a little bit, but when they were counting last night, we were at 7 0.5% turnout. Wow. That's shocking, even for a by-election yeah. in this country. All right. Uh, we'll stay with politics now federally. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, he's threatening to sort of pull the plug on that supply and confidence agreement uh, with the Liberals. I guess it's mostly over health care funding. And again, coming on your show today. Yeah, he's going to be with us at 8.20 this morning. And Jugmeet is in the news for a number of reasons, but you're right. The principal one is that the NDP and the Liberals have this deal, which does not make for a formal uh, coalition government, but it doesn't mean the NDP agrees to backstop the Liberals in exchange for quite a few things, including one of them they got this year, which is the dental program that came into effect on the 1st of December. But Jugmeet Singh is unhappy with the progress the Liberals are making on health. In particular, he's referencing some cases you guys have covered and we have covered, and one of those is that little four-year-old boy who ended up being air ambulanced 350 right. kilometers away from his home and the shortage of beds in pediatric facilities. So it'll be an interesting discussion this morning. And as we move toward the Christmas break, it's also going to be interesting to see whether or not the NDP and the Liberals are falling out of love. Yeah, we'll tune in for that. Thanks, John. And we'll stay with politics and in Mississauga municipally now. Uh, a councillor there wants to raise speed limits in school zones at night. 
I am in full support of this because, uh, as you know, there are, I think there are 50 um, traffic cams or radar cams, speed cams in the city of Toronto. And a couple of months ago, I ended up on a side street at 3.45 in the morning doing 40 kilometers an hour in what was a school zone, 30. But oh. it's not like at 3.45 in the morning there were any school kids hanging out and going to be run down by me on my way to the office. So in Mississauga, and I heartily endorse this, Stephen Dasko, a city councillor, is proposing that they have flexible speed limits, and it'll be 40 kilometers an hour outside of school hours and 30 kilometers inside of school hours. But all that money they're going to lose, John. Yeah. Think about that. Yes, yes, you're right. <laughs> it, but it is such a cash grab. Uh, of I course say I'm it is. fully, fully in support of photo radar, of except that I think you have to have reasonable speed limits. Yeah. I think this is going to pass. Uh, on to other news now uh, in Scarborough. An imam uh, says he was traumatized after allegedly being attacked in his own mosque during prayers. This happened, you're right, in Scarborough. It was uh, in the area of Markham Road and McLevin Avenue. And a man who some people suspect may have been in mental distress entered into the mosque and attacked the imam. He wasn't badly hurt. Uh, two congregants pulled the guy off of the imam. The guy actually left the mosque, got into a car and drove away, but he's been apprehended by police. The question mark right now is whether or not it's going to be investigated as a hate crime or if it is just a random incident. And finally, no more government pork served on airplanes. <laughs> You may have heard about this incident where Mary Simon, the governor general, was traveling on a plane and they ended up spending $1.15 million on catering. There were 29 guests along with the governor general. But it seems to be a case of not only overindulging the people who were on the plane, but also way overspending. I mean, we are talking about $1,000 in lemons and limes alone that were on board this plane. <laughs> so no more cocktail garnishes. John, is it a Caesar? If it doesn't no. have, uh, you know, the, the, the requisite uh, celery and, and, you know, flourish on top, really? I mean, what happened? Not really. I mean, you know what? This reminds me of a famous case on an American airline in the 70s where they discontinued putting olives in martinis. And they said, look at this. We saved $25,000. And yeah, and you served a crappy martini. That's right. <laughs> John Moore, News Talk Radio 1010. Great stuff, as always. Have uh, fun with your guests. We'll be listening. Have yourself a good day and a good show. That's our friend George Lagojanis over at CP24. And, yeah, just to return to that story, which I've tried to track it down. It may actually be apocryphal, but I still think it's a great sort of MBA case school uh, study where I, th I think data mining has become the enemy of definitely of service, but of, uh, of product and, and all kinds of other things because that is precisely what happens, particularly in the airline industry, where they say, hmm, if we could get two more rows of seats on a plane, we would make this much more money. If we could start charging for drinks rather than providing them complimentary, then we could make this much more money. And eventually you just winnow it down to where we are today, where travel is mostly a joyless experience, where everybody's packed in. The next generation of planes are apparently going to be equipped with seats that are made out of basically the fiber that you'd find in an office chair. And, you, you know, and, and 
you will have no room, you will have no comfort, it's going to be a pain in the butt if you're flying more than about an hour. And it's just, but look, look at all the extra money we're going to make. And does the price ever go down? No. It's uh, Speaking of all this, uh, Joe Cristiano, you had a, a mixed experience in trying to get back from New York City yesterday because they flew you business class, but they also decided to depressurize the plane and land in Detroit instead of uh, Toronto. Business and first class. I was bougie. <laughs> okay. So, uh, but first class, this is not like you didn't get a pod, did you? No. I, I, it just got a much wider seat and it happened to have a plug so I could charge my phone, which had they not made me gate check my bag, yeah. I would have had my charger with me. <laughs> this is in keeping with what I'm I'm hearing from an awful lot of people. I've been lucky, but I mean, flights being delayed, flights being canceled, flights being diverted these days. Um, again, flying is a fairly joyless experience now. Subscribe today and always hear the latest episode of The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Did I hear the dialogue in that commercial correctly? Where the wife is asking him to get a rabies test for his mother? Okay, um, I get it. It's for comedic purposes, but I think maybe somebody's copywriter needs to... <laughs> Holiday dinner's going to be great this year. <laughs> ...needs to get to couples therapy. Okay, so um, it's one of those days where a lot of stuff is going to happen. We're, we're sort of, you know, doing rattrapage. We're catching up on a lot of things that have happened. And then a lot of things are going to happen on our show today, including, you know, it's not... It's not exactly the, the most extraordinary get in history, but Charles Souza, who won the election, it would appear yesterday in, um, what is it, Etobicoke Lakeshore? Uh, Mississauga Lakeshore. Mississauga And Lakeshore. I take offense to that. It was a very good get. Well, I realize you did it while on a plane, but, you know, asking a candidate to appear the morning after they have triumphed in a by-election and they accede to a new political career is, I think he was going to say yes. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, meanwhile, and, you know, Joe Cristiano, who you just heard from, uh, you and I are going to have to talk about this as we get ready for this interview, because Jagmeet Singh is kind of in the news on three different fronts, right? Um, there is he saying that he thinks maybe the NDP and the liberals, um, they also need couples therapy, it would seem. Um, and I, I've never quite understood this relationship, because as many of our pundits have pointed out, it does get... It's the kind of relationship the NDP has enjoyed, I think, on two occasions in the past. And during those occasions, one in the 60s, one in the 70s, they did get a lot of very NDP things passed. So liberal governments were strong-armed into doing some very, very NDP things. However, like I said, a lot of our pundits have pointed out that Jagmeet Singh is going to go door-knocking in the next election campaign and say, you know, we need a change of government. It's time for an ADP government. These liberals are horrible. And people are going to say, yeah, well, you're the, you're the guy who made sure they stayed in power for four years. Uh, but yeah, Jagmeet Singh saying that maybe their deal with the liberals is not immutable, let's say. And so it could be coming apart. I think he's just doing some saber rattling to give Justin Trudeau stuff to think about during the Christmas break. And then in the new year, they'll come back and pledge their allegiance all over again. But like I said, there is a bunch of stuff going on with the federal NDP and with Jagmeet Singh to talk about this morning. One of those occasions where you book somebody to appear on the show and then certain developments happen and they can't back out because it's going to make it look like they're trying to control the narrative too much. And so we get to ask them about all kinds of things. So Jagmeet Singh 
at 8.20 this morning. Speaking of the federal parliament, um, yesterday, and you could hear, uh, not necessarily um, on this tape, unfortunately, but that the announcement came as a bit of a shock to people, but a very, very well-appreciated and well-liked MP from uh, Manitoba, Jim Carr, who had been battling cancer for three years, passed away yesterday, and the announcement was made in the House. I don't know how appropriate this is, but I would ask uh, my colleagues if uh, you, Mr. Speaker, could just give uh, a moment of silence. Uh, our colleague Jim Carr just passed away, and I think it would be an appropriate thing if we could just have a moment of silence and a prayer. Larry, we'll stand for a moment of silence for the passing of the Honourable Member Jim Carr. And there followed a moment of silence, which we're not going to play here. Um, and it's a, you know, more of a trivial matter than anything else. But I was kind of curious. The speaker is not supposed to say your name. He's supposed to say the name of your riding. So I don't know if that was in deference to the fact that Jim Carr had passed away or because he had a momentary lapse and couldn't remember the name of his riding. Um, but here was Jim Carr was active. He was a cabinet minister in the Trudeau government, and he was also active in provincial politics. But he was active in his political career, even though he's being treated for cancer, almost right to the end. This final appearance on Power and Politics came just within this month. When I first met you, you were full-on cabinet minister. You've been, you've been open since 2019 about the health challenges you're facing. Yeah. I, I, on a day like this where you get this through, I just wonder, how are you doing now? How are you feeling? Well, I mean, physically not great, uh, but uh, emotionally really, really solid and grateful for the chance to continue to contribute to my country. I said in my speech yesterday, uh, I love every square meter of this country in English, <laughs> en français, in indigenous languages. I wish I spoke more of them in the language of the newly arrived and all that that represents to Canada and Canadians. He was 71 years old. Did you get your paperwork yet where I got mine yesterday? And I opened it up, and first I thought, oh, great, it's another traffic ticket, because it was from the city of Toronto. And no, it was not a traffic ticket. It was this um, notice telling me that I've got to register my house and declare that I actually live in it. And this is all part of a program now where if a house sits empty or a condo or any kind of um, uh, residential unit, if it's just being banked, like you're holding stock and nobody's living in it, then you are going to have to pay 1% of its assessed value per year. So uh, for uh, example, maybe you got a million dollar condo or a million dollar house and 1% a year would come to $10,000. That is no small amount of money. And if you don't file the paperwork or actually you're supposed to be able to do it online, I haven't tried yet. Uh, you'll be subject to a fine of $250. This is expected to bring in some significant revenue for the city, uh, between about 55 and $66 million for the city of Toronto. But the object, objective here, obviously, is to take properties that have been banked, which I have to think is happening less now, uh, but have been banked in the past, and making them available for people to live in them. Because... I know that, you know, Jerry and I have disagreed about this, but real estate is not just a commodity. Because if you own, and there are people and there are corporations and collectives that own countless condos, especially in the city of Toronto, and they leave them empty. Because it's 
for a while, the value of real estate was going up at such an incredible pace. It was certainly it was beating bonds any day of the week. It was beating the index on the TSX and the Dow. Uh, there was one calendar year where properties actually went up by as much as 33%. Now, some of that has slid back, but we're still, when I arrived in this town, the average price of a of a freestanding house, I think was $365,000. Now that was 2003. But now, uh, before this latest setback, the average price of a house, I think the last time I looked was like $1.1 million. That is incredible. And if somebody can't live in a property, then you are artificially inflating the market, but also sim very simply depriving some people of the ability to find housing in the city. And it's just because people would go into a new build condo or a pre-build you know, um, program and they would buy up like 10 units. And then they would just hire some guy who once a month would go in and make sure that everything was fine, but nobody was living in them. And that was because you were making more money on that than you can make on any other investment. But that is a distortion in the force. Uh, it's a distortion in the real estate market, and it's a distortion, especially in the ability of people to find places to live. So that's why I supported this tax. Now that I got my form and I got to go fill this stupid stuff out, I'm a little less enthusiastic, but I'll do it. The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. And when we talk about this waterfront Toronto development, we're talking about the area that was once slated for sidewalk labs. And now there's a new deal. It's going to be uh, 12 acres and they're going to call it Keyside. And I guess I'm kind of excited about this project because I'm, I'm a big fan of urban development issues and public spacing issues. And if you're going to design a neighborhood almost from scratch, that's pretty exciting stuff. Now, Sidewalk Labs was going to be a hyper-technical or technologized, um, built from the ground up place. And I was looking forward to that. I mean, it was going to have all kinds of things where, for example, it would have anonymized data, but it would know when you were coming and going and, you know, when the traffic is heavy and when the traffic isn't heavy and when they need to change the stoplights and um, heated pavement and all kinds of modern technologized buildings. It was going to be something exciting. But all that fell apart. And yet still, I haven't been down there in a while. Normally, I would go down on a bike and check it out. Um, the neighborhood has been sort of the infrastructure of the neighborhood has been in ongoing development and redevelopment. You may have seen some pretty fancy, fancy bridges being installed there and a lot of stuff torn down. Um, my favorite um, Chinese grocery store was demolished not long ago. I realized there are others, but that was the easy one to get to. Um, but in, in the case of this development, I'll believe it when it gets built because I've always called Toronto the city of the eternal plan. And we make all, we come up with all kinds of fantastic ideas and then they just sort of languish for a long time. So a nuclear fusion, now's the time for us to figure out what it is and how excited we should be that something they've been looking for in nuclear research since the 1950s, something that the U.S. government has spent billions on, apparently they've made some progress. NBC News Radio National Correspondent Aaron Real joins us. Hi, Aaron. Hi, yes. Decades in, in the making, but scientists at a federal nuclear weapons facility in California, they've made this 
potentially significant advancement in fusion research. It could lead to a source of bountiful energy in the future, but it's the result of the experiments that have been going on for, again, for decades, attempting to recreate nuclear fusion, a.k.a. replicating the fusion that powers the sun. So no small feat. This is why it's taken quite a bit of time. But the Financial Times first reported this on Sunday, that the scientific advances, they involved the National Ignition Facility, or NIF, and they're basically using giant lasers to create conditions that briefly mimic the explosions of nuclear weapons. So the fusion experiment at NIFT, it achieves what's known as ignition, and that's where the fusion energy generated equals the laser energy that started the reaction. So it's also called the energy gain of one. U.S. Department of Energy will make a big announcement today, but U.S. scientists, they do this by firing pellets that contain hydrogen fuel into this array of nearly 200 lasers, and essentially they're creating a series of extremely fast, repeated explosions at a rate of 50 times per second, and the energy collected from the neutrons and the alpha particles is extracted as heat, and that heat holds the key to producing energy. So again, we this is a first step in a many, many series of steps, but the big challenge now is harnessing fusion energy and sustaining it long enough so that it can power electric goods, heating systems, things like that around the globe, and that's going to be a ways off, but this is a big first step. Aaron, thank you very much. Good to have you. Thank you. Have a great day. Aaron Rael, NBC News National Radio Correspondent. I think this has a connection to, what is it, the Haldron Collider, I think they, they call it in Europe, which a friend of my brother's works on. And back in the day when uh, I was in Europe once visiting my brother with my parents and we had him, this uh, scientist, this physicist, for dinner, and my mother kept on cautioning him and saying, now, don't wreck the world. Um, I, but I'll, I'll, I'll have to ask my brother, because my brother's a scientist, as you know. And I am certainly, as much as I can be a bit of an autodidact and try to learn new stuff as I go along, there's no way I'm ever going to understand the, the physics of fusion and fission. So uh, I'll... And, and you know who could pr- explain this, and that'll be fine. He'll be here on Thursday, on Test Tube Thursday. But Dan Riskin can probably unpack this story for us and tell us how much it matters. So I don't remember his tenure in Toronto. Perhaps you do. But uh, former Blue Jays pitcher T.J. House has become the third Major League Baseball player to come out as gay. He posted a very nice picture on social media with his boyfriend slash fiance. They're getting married. Uh, and like I said, he's retired at the age of 33. I'm not, I called up his name before the show and I got this great long flash, all these box charts of stats. And I thought, I have no idea what this means. Um, so again, maybe I'll call on some people who know way more about sports than I do. Uh, he played four seasons in major league baseball, three of them with Cleveland, one here in Toronto. And he joins only two other people who ever came out as gay. One of them is Glenn Burke, who was an outfielder for the Los Angeles Dodgers and the Oakland A's in the 1970s. And then there was Billy Bean, who's become somewhat of a, you know, celebrity sports figure slash um, gay rights promoter. And Billy Bean was a utility player in the 1980s and uh, the 1990s. Then there's one other guy who never actually came out, but was widely known 
uh, to be uh, an incredible iconoclast and um, out gay and unabashed about it in the early, not the early days of baseball, because we're not going back to the 1940s, uh, but in a period of time where nobody ever thought about these issues. And yet I don't think he ever publicly talked about it. That is The Breakfast Wrap. Thanks a lot for listening. My name is John Moore. I hope we'll talk again soon. You've been listening to The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Don't forget to subscribe and get the latest episode from wherever you get your podcasts. And listen weekday mornings from 5 to 9 on News Talk 1010.